Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from Psalm 139. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 23 and extending to verse 24. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we hear this word read now in your presence with your people, and we say in response to that word that your word will stand forever, we testify to this word's truthfulness. We acknowledge it to be truthful, no matter how we feel about it, no matter what we would say about it, it is a truthfulness that we acknowledge that is outside of us that holds the world together, is a reality about who you are. Your word is true. The grass will wither, the flower will fade, but your word is what will stand. And we've come to attend to that word. Because in attending to that word, we hear from you. And if we don't hear from you, then eternity hangs in the balance. That this word from you, having your word speak through the power of your Holy Spirit to us is more necessary than anything else. And so we recognize at this moment we need your word. We've got lots of words in the world. Lots of words in our heart and in our head. But this is your word. And we would ask that before your word, you would silence every other word right now. And that your word would be so clear and so compelling that all other words would have to accord and align with your word. Let our response be in light of this petition. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have sung some beautiful songs this morning. Tremendous words that have assured my heart. I told the early service, and it was, it was true. I had to fight back tears singing some of these songs this morning. And the Lord just used them in my own heart to remind me of what it is we're going to be talking about today, but to assure me of His love and His care for us as His church. When we come to the Psalms, we're, we're coming to songs. We're, we're coming to the hymnody of the Israelites. We're, we're coming to the hymn book of the Old Testament. And when we turn to the Psalms, and one of the reasons we do turn to the Psalms, one of the reasons we love the Psalms. Don't you love the Psalms? 
to love to go to the Psalms and read the Psalms and have lines from the Psalms lodged away in your heart for all the various things that you experience in life. And the reason is that the Psalms, those songs of worship to the Lord, have been referred to, and I think appropriately so, as a soul poured out on page. The soul in communion with God poured out on page. You get to see in a psalm someone communing with the Lord, not telling you how to commune all the time or talking you through. We get to see it. We get to experience David, for instance, in this particular psalm, pouring out his own soul in communion with the Lord. And you get a sense of the architecture of communion with the Lord when you enter into a psalm. And that's why it's real to us. It's why we immediately connect oftentimes to the Psalms because we find that what they're feeling and thinking and experiencing is very close to what we're thinking and feeling and experiencing. And and so we go to the Psalms and we find our soul there. And then we see them take our soul into communion with the Lord and we find our way into communion with the Lord. That's why we love this. Psalms. There's a realness and a liveliness to their writing and to their expression. It's also important to know that the Psalms are a genre. They're a form of writing in the Hebrew Old Testament. They're not prose like 1st and 2nd Samuel or 1st and 2nd Kings. They're not prophetic like Isaiah or or Jeremiah, and there's a particular structure and and genre and imagery that goes along with those various genres. When we come to the Psalms, we're coming to poetry. We're coming to poetry. Now, not all of us love poetry in this room. Not all of us get poetry. I'm just get it. We read it. And we go, I don't know what they're trying to say in, in, in the poem. And sometimes in the Psalms, we feel that way when we come to uh, these poems. But we, we do know that the point of a poem is oftentimes to see a particular truth from a different angle. Emily Dickinson years ago would use the phrase that we have to tell some things instead of straight. We have to tell them at a slant. And by telling them at a slant, we get to see the thing that we might know in a different light, and it hits us in a different way, and it makes a deeper impact or a different impact. Isn't this true each week as we come into worship? You have realized, as I've noted to you before, that I only have really one message. I preach it every week, gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you might notice that that one message shows up in a myriad of different ways as we look at the scriptures. And very often, the thing that you knew in some way coming into this room will, over the course of this service, by God's grace, through the power of His Spirit, become new to you. Again, there will be a renewal that will take place, and it will be as if you've heard it for the first time. The freshness of that truth will come again. That work is part of the work of of worship. It's part of the design of the Scripture as an objective truth in black and white that is also a living word that is carried by the wings of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And so we're asking for the black and white to be living in the midst of this moment, that it's an objective truth that would become personally transformative. And I believe David's prayer is right along that line. That that personalness would be what strikes us home. 
Now, when we come to the Psalms, though, as I mentioned, they're poetry, and poetry has rules, like literature. Literature has, has rules. You might remember your, your English literature or reading uh, Greek uh, romance and looking at, at Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and, and recognizing the meters and, and, and breaking it down and noticing that there's a numeric structure to it and, and it follows a pattern. Well, Hebrew poetry is the same way. Hebrew poetry is the same way. The type of rhetorical device, the literary structure that is used in Psalms prolifically by uh, the Israelites and David in his writing of the Psalms is what's called parallelism. Parallelism. We see it all the way throughout the Psalms. You're, you're familiar with it even if you're not familiar with it. You know it. Think of the opening of Psalm 19. You know, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. I went King James on you because it's beautiful. The language and the rhythm and the poetry of it, it showeth forth his handiwork. Now, if you notice, there's a couplet. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's one sentence. And the next sentence is, the firmament or the sky showeth forth his handiwork. That, that couplet is essentially, if we can say it this way, saying the same thing differently. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky showeth forth his, his handiwork. It's, it's parallel statements, couplets in the poetry of the, of the Psalms. And, and they're meant to say the same thing differently. It, to give you a different light, another angle. To tell it a little bit more at a slant. So that it works its way in. There's lots of different parallelisms in the Psalms. We won't go through it this morning. Don't get worried. I'm not going to take you all the way through Hebrew poetry this morning. But I want you to see that there's a lot of poetic device and elements of parallelism here in Psalm 139 that help you actually understand the message of this prayer. David is actually leaning on parallelism in his prayer. He's not just merely gushing in the midst of his prayer, though there is a fervor to what it is he's praying here, he has organized his language in the midst of this prayer so that it can become a prayer that we pray. I want you to see the nature of the parallel. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. He says, search me and know me. And then he says, try me and know my thoughts. Search me and know me or know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Now, at first hearing, you might say that sounds a lot like Psalm 19 that you quoted a second ago. That's a couplet that says kind of the same thing. You're right. It's a parallelism. That's what it is. But it's not exactly like Psalm 19. It's a little different. It's a parallelism that's synonymous, says in some ways the same message, but in addition to the being synonymous, it adds something. It says something a little more. It goes a little further. Now, for those scholars out there, you know what this is. This is synthetic parallelism. There'll be a test later on synthetic parallelism. Close your books. Get out your piece of paper. We're gonna... No, no, no. No test later. Don't worry about that. But the parallelism in Psalm 23 or Psalm 139 verse 23 is building. Let me put it to you clearly so you can see it. David said, Father, here's what I want you to do. Search me and know my heart. 
And knowing who you are, Father, I know how you will search my heart. You will try me and you will know my thoughts. See that? The what is search me and know me. Here's what, here's what I'm praying. How are you going to do that? You're going to try me and you're going to know my thoughts. You're going to try me and you're going to know my thoughts. He's building on this request. Why is he doing that? Because he's, he knows how the Lord works. He knows his God. He knows that if he asks the Lord to search him and to know him, that the way the Lord searches us and knows us is he tries us. He puts us in a test. He puts us in a trial. And what a test does or what a trial does is it reveals what's really there. What's hidden becomes exposed. That's what happens in the midst of a test. Now, we don't like to think of tests this way. In fact, when we fail tests, when we fall short in tests, we, we say things like, well, the study guide just wasn't what it's supposed to be, and that's the reason I didn't do, didn't do well in the test. Or, or, you know, the teacher in this course is just terrible, and she just didn't, you know, teach the material. And, and so what are we doing? We, we failed the test, and so the problem is out there. Problem is out there. Now, we laugh, but that's what we do, Right? You know, I, I lose my temper and we go, if I just didn't have all these difficult people to work with around me, I, I am really at core, I'm a great person. I am an amazing person. But when I get around these people, the, the worst comes out. You know, we say, they bring the worst out in me. And we tend to think that the identity that we connect with, our self-evaluation is when, when we're good. And the aberration the, the not real self is the bad. We, we, we have phrases. We say, I'm just not myself today. You know, I, I just bit your head off about something and I'm just, I'm just not, my, not myself today. I, I hate to tell you, friends, that is yourself. Like, I don't, I, did I just burst? Any bubbles get burst? Just, that is yourself. That test is revealing, it's not causing. Did you catch that? That's not how tests work. T tests don't cause. They, they reveal. They expose. Can you imagine going and getting... You know, I had to get an MRI last year. Try not to do that. It's expensive. It's very, very expensive. Try not to do it. I had an MRI last year on my knee. I was having trouble with my knee. Praise be to God. I'm better. Don't worry about me. Doing well. And had an MRI on my knee. Come back. And, and, and nothing's wrong. Praise be to God. But could you imagine if I... you know, Sure enough, Nate, there's a meniscus tear... In your knee, we're going to have to do it. And I go, that MRI. The, I can't believe the MRI made that happen. Made, made that meniscus tear take, take place. I, I'm so frustrated with the test, the exam, and what it cost. You see how ridiculous it is now? That's how ridiculous it is. When we enter a test, its purpose, its design is to reveal. And, and notice, notice David's order in the prayer. Just, just to be clear, because he wants you to know that there's all kinds of stuff in the recesses of your heart that you, for the most part, can let, you know, kind of fly in order until things get rough. And then when things get rough, stuff sloshes out. It, it, it rises to the top. And so you see his order. He doesn't say, um, know my thoughts. Now try me. As if I'm, 
I'm in worship. I'm writing a psalm, a divine psalm. Know my thoughts, Lord. I'm doing great today. Now try me. No, no, no. Reverse that. Try me and then know my thoughts. Because the thoughts that come in the try, in the test, is the real me. That's who I am. I want you to know me. I want you to know my heart. You see, he knows that the Lord uses trials to squeeze us, and in the squeezing of us, our hearts are revealed. The real you begins to show up. Now, what's helpful about this is that David is teaching us a very important biblical truth, and that is when when trials come, and they, and they come, when trials come, when tests come in our lives and they're given to us from the Lord, he, he gives them because he wants to reveal something. He wants to bring something out of us. He wants to go to work on something. He's chiseling, as I said at the opening of this service. He's chiseling away something. His trials have a purpose and intention, and the intention of that trial is first to reveal. It's to bring out what's there. But the long-term focus of that trial by the work of his grace is to, another R, refine. To refine. That's why we read 1 Peter earlier in our service, that fiery trials come, and when those trials come, the goal is that that fire would, would burn away the dross and the gold would be purified. That's the goal of God in trials is to reveal and to, to refine, to continue to shape us into his image. This is important for those of you who think, I'm having a trial in my life or I'm having a test in my life and God doesn't love me. God hates me. He's after me. He's trying to get me. He's got it in for me. That's what your flesh will tell you. That's what your internal dialogue in your mind will tell me. Tell you he doesn't, doesn't love you. He tells us in the word, which is the word that you ought to listen to. I prayed that the word you'd hear and every other word would be silenced. That's what we're praying. The word that you listen to so often is the word in your head. You talk to yourself more than anybody. And a lot of time you lie to yourself. We've got to hear what the word says. The word says God is not after you to punish you. If you were a child of the Lord, the punishment has fallen on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no way he can punish you. There's no way. It would be unjust for him to punish you. He's already paid full justice and penalty for your sins. How could he charge you also? That would compromise his justice. He can't punish you. He's not out to punish you or to do you in. He is going to discipline you because he loves you. Because he loves you and he wants you to grow into exactly what it is that he's designed you to be. He wants to reveal it and he wants to refine it out of you and refine you for the goal that he has determined you to be. So David is teaching us that. He's framing us that when we pray, try me, we're not praying, Lord, I want your punishment to fall on me. I want your 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 
your hatred, your wrath to fall on me, all of that's been satisfied in Christ. We're praying, Lord, I know that I need the steady hand of your discipline and of your guidance and of your direction. And Lord, there are things in my life I can't get to and I can't see. And there are things that are continually taking me down paths that they ought not to take me down. And I know that if you don't get in there and work by the power of your spirit to draw this out, then I will not grow into the person you've called me to be. And there's nothing more that I want to be than to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's the spirit. Now here's what's interesting about David's prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. In that phrase, try me and know my thoughts, David already knows what's going to come out. David already knows what's going to come out in this prayer. Maybe some of you in this room think, yeah, he's going to try me and good stuff is going to come out. No, it's not. No, no, it's not. I, I am just bursting bubbles today. I don't mean to do that. Um, but good stuff is not going to come out when you're, when you're tried. You're not just going to go, wee. I mean, that's not going to happen. You may get there by God's grace. And I pray you do. I pray you get to the place where, as the New Testament tells us to, to count it all joy. I hope you get to that place. We're laboring for that. But that's not the instinctive response or reflex of your heart. David knows that that's even going to be the case with him. How do I know that? Well, if you've got your Bibles open, and I, I really hope that you, you do, and if you don't, yeah, there's a pew Bible in, in front of you. I, I'm going to ask you to look at that instead of what's before you in the, in the bulletin, just so you can see that I'm not, I don't want you to think I'm making up something. All right, I want you to see this. It's actually in your, your text. But if you look there at verse 23, the end of verse 23, try me and know my thoughts, you'll see a little footnote by thoughts. You see a little footnote? A little footnote there by, by thoughts. It's like a little one probably, or maybe even an asterisk, depending on what text of Scripture you're using. If you, if you trace that little asterisk to the glossary, whether it's there on the, the page that you're in or, or in another place in that Bible, you know what you're going you're gonna to read? You're going to read an alternate word or two for the complexity of the term that David is using here. It's a term that faithfully means thoughts, but it could be translated cares. Or even better, and as it is translated in other places, like Psalm 94, it's translated anxieties. Anxieties. In fact, some of you may have memorized this verse before, and some of you may have memorized it in the NIV. The NIV actually reads, Try me and know my anxious Thoughts. That's how it reads. It's a fair translation. It's, it's taking in the full scope of what it is that David is actually after. So I want you to hear what David is, is actually after. He's saying, I know that when you try me, what's going to come up is anxious thoughts. He already knows that's what's going to come up. When you try me, what's going to pop up or bubble up to the top is going to be anxious thoughts. There are going to be anxieties that are going to be there. Now that's very wise. That's very honest. David is self-assessing. He knows what's going to come up. And he wants those to be known by God when that trial and test comes, that God would know the anxieties. Why? Because the anxieties are a window into what's really important to David. And your anxieties are what's really important to you. A window 
a window into what you're really living for. Now are you beginning to see David's prayer? David is saying, Lord, I am so scattered in my mind most of the time. There's all kinds of things pinging around in there. Anxious thoughts just running around in my head. You know the language we use. My mind is racing, right? It's got a panickiness about it. It's flitting from one thing to another. It says, do this, try that. Did you get that done? Hope that doesn't fall apart. Saying all those things at once. And you're just kind of bouncing around, running at the urgency of the thoughts as they come. And what's interesting is when your mind is so full and it's full of anxieties and the thoughts are coming fast, you can't think. You can't think. You know, it's like in a moment of panic saying, calm down, think. Well, I'm panicked. I can't calm down and think. Like I need, I need something to, to give in order to get there. In the previous verses, we have David talking about enemies, bloodthirsty men, injustice. It's likely there is a context here for his own personal attack. It could be that David himself is recognizing some of the anxieties of being in the position that he was in as king or on the, the, the trail as he was often being hunted by the previous king, Saul, or the disaster of his own son, Absalom. We don't know the context, but David's life was one full of anxieties. And so he says, Lord, what I want to happen is that when you try me to know the anxieties that pop up in my life, then I will know, hear this, then I will know what in my life is a rival to you. Then I will know. Then I will know what is a rival to you in my life. When my anxieties go out of the roof, when my finances get tight, and I question all of your provision, and I'm unmoved by the people who are dying eternally around me, I am triggered into what was really important to me. When I'm frustrated, by the traffic going north of 65 into Nashville. And I have choice words that fall from my lips. And I let all kinds of injustices in my own life and those around me go by with narrow concern. That's what David is saying. I know what a rival is to you. Because an anxiety reveals what is important, what you're stressed about, where your concern is. If you can break it out, what is an anxiety, spiritually speaking? So let me clarify. Some of us battle in this, in this room anxiety. And some of us battle anxiety in a clinical way. There is literally physical components of our bodies that make us quite susceptible to anxiety. That's true of some of us here in this room. For many of us in this room, there is a spiritual underpinning that maybe is more true to the reality of the anxieties that we experience in this life. And that spiritual underpinning often bubbles up like this. When we're worried about getting that done and taking care of that and those provisions coming in and the kids being okay and that about to collapse and ignore that as long as you can until it collapses and you come back, 
filled with that thought pattern, I just want to ask you, what are you filled with thinking about? The world. The world. The world has captured you. It's captured you. All the stuff of the world has captured you. All the things of the world have grabbed your attention. They've, they've got you. And your mind can't let them go. And it's just running. Worldly thinking. When we're given to worldly thinking, what's the emotion that arises from that? Fear. Fear. Worldly thinking moves to fearful thinking. And this is why it runs. You know, when you're afraid, it goes fast. It doesn't move slow. Your mind moves fast. There's fearful thinking that's here. Let me give it another title. It's not just worldly thinking. It's not just fearful thinking. What's behind this and what worries David is it's faithless thinking. It's thinking where God is not present at all within our thoughts. God is not present. Who he is is not present. The reality of his truths are not present. It's it's thinking of the world. It's fretting about the world without God. Having no sense of his presence is is there. It happens when you think to yourself, I'm fretting about this thing. I don't know what the Lord's going to provide for me. And then someone, and let's just say you're ready for it. Because sometimes we're not ready for it when someone assures us of the promises of God. And we just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we move on. But let's just say you're at a place, by God's grace, you're eaten up with fear with regards to provision, and someone comes to you and looks into the opening pages of Matthew and says, God promises to take care of the sparrow. How will he not surely take care of you? And all of a sudden, there's an assurance that kind of says, oh yeah, what happened? The promise and the presence of God met you. And what was its fruit? Peace. Peace was its fruit. If you really heard it, if you digested it, if you took it in, the anxiety of that moment, heard the promises of God, connected to the presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, giving you the peace of God. That's what happened. And now all of a sudden, there is a confidence that has taken place. There is a strength. You're looking at the same situation. It hasn't changed at all, but the whole situation has changed. Why? Because you're looking at it not with worldly, fearful thinking. You're looking at it with the promises of God in the presence of God, experiencing the peace of God. That's what's happening. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind, his thoughts, is stayed, founded on you. That's what the prophet Isaiah tells us. So here's the question. How do we, how do we get there? How would that work? If we could actually live at, at a place like that. That, I believe, is what David is praying for in large part. And we'll get into some of the context for why I believe that that's the case in the days to come. But if you can just hear the resonance for just a second as we draw to a close. The resonance with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. 
with, with, with the prayer that David is praying at the end of Psalm 139. Surge me, O God, know my heart, try me, and know my anxious thoughts. I want you to hear Paul's antidote, his instruction to us in Romans 12. You'll, you'll know these verses where he speaks about the mercies of God to present your body as a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, what does he say? Do not be conformed to this world. When you are full of worldly thinking and you are shot through the roof with fear and you are faithless in the way that you're engaging with life, do you know what's happening? You're being discipled by the world. You're being conformed. And the evidence of that is a racing anxious mind filled with fear, unstable in all of its ways. Do not be conformed to this world. What's he say? But be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. How does that work? That by testing. You may prove that which is good and right, acceptable and perfect. See, Paul, it's almost like he's stealing from David. As he, as he writes those instructions to us. By renewal of the mind. How does that happen? By being tested. Meaning, friends... The reason we often don't grow in the Christian life is without this renewal of mind. We get captured by the mind of the world. So God brings a trial, a test into our life to renew us, to bring us back so that we would go, aha, this is what I should have been living for. I've been living for the wrong things. That clarity happens. And then we realize we can discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. This is why we would pray, Lord, try me. Try me and test my thoughts, my know my anxious thoughts, because they need to be revealed, they need to be rooted out, I need to be refined, because I want to live according to your will. Now, the question I want to, want to raise with you this morning is, can we trust God with that process? That's the end of that verse in, in Isaiah 26. He, God keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's where he goes, because he trusts in you. Can we trust God with this process? Well, listen, I believe that David has been assuring us throughout this passage of Psalm 139 that we can trust him. I think the whole content of Psalm 139 teaches it. If you were with us last week, you'll know that we went through the, the content of Psalm 139, verses 1 through 22 up to verse 23 and 24, just so you could be familiar with the content. And we looked at how, what he knew about God. Well, I, wanna, I want you to see what he knows about God in the context of this petition. And think about it with me. If you have your Bibles open, look over verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 139. Verses 1 to 6. We said last week that God is revealed in verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 139 as all-knowing. He's omniscient. He, kno he knows everything. So let's think about it with this request. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Lord, because you are omniscient, you know exactly what I need. There is not one providence that takes place in my life that is not custom built by you for me to become who I'm supposed to be 
in Christ. I know that because you know me better than anybody else would know me. One of the greatest fears within our hearts over experiencing trials is we don't know how they're going to turn out. What's going to happen? How's this going to end? And we think, oh no. He knows it all. We already know the end. He's already given to us the end. He knows where we're headed. He knows what he has for us. He's formed every day. He's shaped it. We can trust him because he's omniscient. He knows everything. And he knows exactly where this is going to end up. What's another one of the greatest fears we experience when we're going through trial or suffering? We feel so alone. So alone. When I'm going through a trial, I think to myself, I'm the only person in human history who's ever experienced. Do you do that? I do that. Pray for me. I have this little pity party about me and what I'm going through. I feel so alone, though everybody has gone through it. In verses 7 to 12, the doctrine that he focused on was omnipresence. That God is everywhere. You have never been alone in a trial. You have never been alone in a trial. You felt alone. But you have never been alone in a trial. God has been there with you. He has always been there with you. Scripting perfect knowledge of what it is you need to bring you where it is that he wants you to be. What's the third and final greatest fear that we experience as we come to a trial? (laughs) Not being able to do anything about it. Powerlessness. We can't change it. We can't make it change. In verses 13 to 18... The focus of David's prayer was the omnipotence and the all-powerfulness of God. That nothing can stay his hand. That which he knows is best for us has scripted for us. He will walk with us and he will sure enough bring it to its end. Because there is nothing that can stop him. Our God sits in the heavens, the psalmist writes. He does whatever he pleases. So he has all knowledge He has complete presence with us, and he has all power to accomplish it. We just need to know that he loves us. We just just need to know that he loves us. We need to know that what he knows, and when he's with us, and the power that he has to accomplish it, is driven by love, and we know that. We know that David knew that. That's why he could pray this prayer. He knew the covenant love of his God all the way back from the times in which it was spoken with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 going forward and the covenant he made with David in 2 Samuel 7. He, he, he knew the love of God deeply, so he could pray this prayer. He could entrust himself to the Lord. We, thousands of years in the future, should I... Almost shudder to say it, but it's true. We know more than David knew. We know more than David knew. 
And, and what, we, what we see is a Savior. A Savior who, who comes, who, as the second person of the Trinity, was omniscient from before the foundation of the world, but he entered into time and space and history, and he submitted his omniscience. He laid it aside so that he could experience life like you and me and follow only at the will of his Father, trusting him by faith day by day. That's what he did. He led him to the greatest trial that anyone has ever faced in human history. I don't mean in saying that to belittle any trial you've had or any trial you will have. But trust me, it is not worthy to be compared with what our Savior dealt with on the cross. And when he was on the cross, the cry that he gave on the cross was, My Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The God who is always with us experienced utter aloneness in the midst of his trial. And on the cross, as he hung there, alone and abandoned, trusting his Father in the confusing moment that is there, he was powerless, giving himself up to the weakness and the brokenness of the charged account of our sin. He did not call the legion of angels that he could have called. He simply gave himself powerless as a lamb, we're told, that is led to the slaughter. When the Lord Jesus Christ entered life in that way, and experience life in that way. He did that so that you know you can trust him. With the knowledge that he has for what's best for you. That he's with you. He will never abandon you because he was abandoned for you. He paid that debt. And he is all powerful now at the right hand of the Father. And he's given you the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Who will bring to completion that which he has started. And so you can be certain that nothing can stay his hand. He wants you to know that. And he wants you more than anything to know that as those anxieties today pop up in the midst of the trials and the tests that you go through and you fail constantly to be faithful, he wants you to know that he was searched out and he was known all the way to the heart. He was tried with the greatest of trials and everything that was anxious and fear-ridden about that trial led to this. There was no grievous way found in him. There was no grievous way found in him. He was perfect, which makes him our perfect substitute. If anything had been found grievous in him, we would have had no hope. But nothing was found grievous in him. He passes the test. He's the only one. He's the only one who passes the test. Now here's what's remarkable. When you pray, try me and know my thoughts. And all those anxieties pop up and you think, another F. Another F, another ill-prepared. 
what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is telling you today, that by virtue of Christ's accomplishment and finishedness of that test, is that you have an A. His A is your A. That's his love for you. He's given you his record. He's given you the fullness of his test. Now that doesn't, as we hear that, as we understand the, the knowledge and the recognition, is that doesn't mean we're never examined again. We're examined over and over and over again so that those anxieties can more and more be rooted out and we can be more and more refined for Jesus. But it doesn't undo us because we have a strong foundation in the gospel that none of our failures can wipe away. But we are so loved in the gospel that we want to so longingly become like a Savior who has loved us in this way that we will never give up seeking his examination until we are perfect as he is. That's the spirit of a Christian. That's the walk of the Christian. That's the prayer of a Christian, not just for this year, but for every day of every year of your life. That's our prayer. Brothers and sisters, as we go into this year together, and as we enter all kinds of tests and trials and fail them, we're going to need the encouragement of what we've heard today. But don't resist the test. Don't resist the test. Don't resist admitting the anxieties and the struggles and the fears. Let them come. Let Jesus take care of them. And let's together lean into the tape until we cross it. And we know him and his heart, even as he knows us and our heart. Lord in heaven, we need this. Father, we need this. This is the work that you have called us to as your people. This is the prayer that you've called us to as your people. We would ask that you would grant it to whatever degree anything that has said today been in accord with your will. Make it unforgettable and transformable for every single one of us. To the degree that anything of it is not according with your will. Strike it from the record and from our memory. But in all things, glorify yourself in us and with us. Until the day we're with you in glory. Answer this prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.